Everyone's happily enjoying their Christmas luncheon. But I'd like to get started with a couple of comments and a quick intro. We'd like to get Sarah up here. We have a full house today. It feels really good. It's our last program of the year. Um, thanks for all your support, as always, everyone. Uh, my name is Tony Smaniato. I sadly leave Programs Committee effective today. And I'll be most sad about losing my two girls over here, Jerry Moore and Margie Krakowski. It's been a blast working with you. But we've got a great new ferocious chair for programs, John Bifro. John, wave your hand. He's carrying the banner in the next year. <clears throat> we've got some really cool things uh, planned already. As you know, our Fed, our Fed luncheon will be in January. We've got a couple other exciting things planned, including on the suburbs. So keep an eye on the Cornet website for next year. Uh, today we're using the Conference I.O. bridge so we can uh, accumulate questions for Sarah and we'll bombard her at the end of the program. We'll also pass this around if you have questions, but conference, or what is it, cornet.cnf.io uh, in your browser. Um, we're delighted to have Sarah here today. She's uh, come a long way to be with us. <laughs> Not from New England, she came from England <laughs> to be with us today, so we really appreciate that. Uh, Sarah joined Iron Mountain a few years ago as Senior Vice President of Global Real Estate. And for those of you who don't know, Iron Mountain is a, a New York Stock Exchange uh, company that really focuses on storage and information management. Um, in her role, she drives the globalization of the, the corporate uh, real estate function, and she transforms it into uh, a strategic business partner of the line business, and that's where she's going to focus today, Sarah, correct? We're gonna focus on that, on that bridge. Um, Iron Mountain, interestingly, converted to a REIT in uh, 2014. It's now a publicly traded company, a real estate uh, investment trust, and maybe we'll get you back some other day to talk about that. Um, but uh, her responsibility is vast. They have operations in 37 countries in a real estate portfolio in excess of 65 million square feet spread out over 1,100 locations. Um, and I would also uh, challenge a lot of you, you'd be hard pressed not to see the Iron Mountain brand or logo anywhere here in Chicagoland, whether it be on a box or a truck uh, or on the side of a building. I literally, or as Martin would say, literally, I walked out of my office to come here today and at the light was the Iron Mountain van. It was, it's just unbelievable, great brand. So Sarah, uh, quickly, Sarah was also former president of Fidelity Real Estate Company, the corporate real estate division of Fidelity Investments, a former president and chairman of NIAP out east, Massachusetts chapter, an immediate past present, president of the New England chapter of Cornet Global, uh, New England. Congratulations. The winner of five Cornet Global Luminary Awards as a top-rated speaker, and in 2013, she was named Cornet Global's Corporate Real Estate Executive of the Year. So Sarah's uh, going to be welcomed up to the stage. Give her a warm Chicago welcome on this blustery day. We're so excited to have you, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. All right, so um, I'm based in Boston. Not in London, but I was most immediately in London earlier this week and got in last night here. And it is really my uh, pleasure to be here in uh, Chicago uh, to speak with you today about something that is very, um, uh, it, it takes up a lot of my uh, energy. And I've had an opportunity to uh, think about this topic 
uh, over the past uh, 10 or 15 years as I've watched the industry um, evolve. And I hope that what I share with you in the next uh, little less than an hour is something that you'll be able to uh, take away uh, with you uh, as you think about your own organization. So I usually like to um, roam around when I'm talking. I'm going to be a little closer to the podium today because um, I was not uh, good and didn't get uh, Beth. Uh, I didn't send her the presentation, so we're using my laptop. And evidently, um, it doesn't like the clicker, so I'm going to be stuck uh, over here a little bit. Um, and I'll be happy to take any questions that people have as you kind of uh, write them on your uh, computer. Um, I'll try and pause during the presentation to take questions. Um, otherwise, we'll do them uh, at the end. So what I'm going to talk to you today about is client relationship management, uh, what I call bridging the gap between strategy and execution. And I call it client relationship management 3.0 because I think Client relationship management's been around a while. And in order for me to uh, really do justice to the topic, I have to talk to you, I have to give you sort of a brief history of client relationship management. So my first question out there is, how many of you watch the Big Bang Theory? Anybody? OK, there's, there's quite a few. OK. So the opening of that basically takes us from the beginning of time until current day in about um, 45 seconds. And I'm going to try and do that for client relationship management uh, so that we can get on to today's topic. So um, first, I'll just give you a little bit on uh, Iron Mountain. But Tony did a great job. We actually were founded in 1951 by a mushroom farmer named Herman Naust. He grew mushrooms in an underground uh, iron mine. And uh, at some time uh, around oh, the World War II uh, arena uh, when, and Cold War starting to uh, creep up, he decided uh, mushrooms weren't the way to go, but secure space for uh, New York institutions and banks and things like that would be really secure underground. And that's what sort of started it and how the company got its name. We then uh, went through uh, a period of time of about 12 years um, of basically rolling up the industry, which had been a lot of uh, much smaller players. Um, and, and now we're a $3 billion a year company, having gone public in 1996 with $140 million in revenue. We have about 20,000 uh, employees, and we recently converted to be a real estate investment trust, which, as Tony said, is a story for another day. So here we are, the evolution of client relationship management. Um, we're going to start back when uh, Sun Microsystems was still a company. They are no longer. But they were really on the leading edge of saying, you know what, we have all these functional areas in real estate, but we don't really have something that ties it together uh, for the business. And they were really the first people to put in place uh, a client relationship management function. And that, at that time, that was very um, uh, innovative. And what you see uh, came out of that was the planning was still very short term. Um, the solutions were still very opportunistic, and they were driven by what was happening currently in that environment. And most of the goals of the client relationship management people were really to serve the enterprise as opposed to a particular business unit. And then uh, from there, we went to uh, client relationship management uh, 1.0. 
So the first phase is before there was anything such as client relationship management, our decisions were based on getting good real estate deals, and it was just all about the real estate driving it. Then when we got into this business unit alignment with client relationship management 1.0, you then got into a situation where you're trying to marry current demand and future demand with current supply and potential future supply. And uh, we still focused at that point in time a sort of one way forward. We took the demand numbers, we took the supply numbers, we put them together, and we had a, a vision of uh, how we were going to go forward. And a lot of that um, was really aligned with uh, the finance part of the, uh, of the business. And the client relationship managers that were first put in were aligned by business unit. That was, that was it. And then what happened is we got to client relationship management 2.0. And then we said, you know, we need... We need to have deeper engagement with the client. And uh, we need to do uh, more scenario planning, meaning we need to look at drivers of demand, not just what somebody is forecasting. But let's try and understand the drivers. Let's understand what might change, et cetera. And we got more sophisticated about that. And then the plans were really not just focused on driving for the enterprise, but really looking at how do we balance business unit solutions with enterprise um, goals and objectives. And then the last thing about um, client relationship management at that point was people were starting to realize that when you have enterprises that spread out over uh, a vast geography, having a client relationship manager that was business unit aligned and that sat there with the corporate heads um, well, you all know from your organizations. I mean, how often does the field actually not hear what's going on back in corporate headquarters? Like, all the time. It's worse than, you know, whisper down the lane or one of those, like, two cups with a string. And so what we were finding is our client relationship management people talked to the heads of the business, and the heads of the business said, oh, yeah, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then you go out into the, into the uh, regions or your different geographies that have again, their own sort of management layer, and they're like, we're not going to do this. What are you talking about? And so it became clear that uh, you needed some kind of client relationship management presence geographically based. And, wh and why was that? Because at the end of the day, we're real estate people, and something happens in a space. And so this whole... Um, method of uh, working with the corporate heads and rolling something out actually needed to be executed in multiple places. And that's sort of where most people are right now. And that's my view. That's where most companies are right now. So how did we get to be strategic partners of the business? Well, you didn't get to be strategic partners if you couldn't execute on your leases, uh, if you missed critical dates. Uh, you couldn't get to be a strategic partner if you couldn't keep the office clean. You couldn't get to be a strategic partner if you couldn't deliver your projects on time and on budget. So all of your execution functions in a company had to be doing a really good job at what they were doing before they start to say, yeah, well, okay, we'll talk to you about business drivers and business needs, right? And so that's what happened in, in companies that were able to execute on this client relationship management function and get a, a closer connection to the business. It's because their execution functions were working well. And here's, 
here's the crux of the problem, okay? People spent a lot of time, I still remember talking to the people that put this in in Sun, Sun Life, uh, Sun, uh, Sun Microsystems all those years ago. They spent a lot of time writing the job description for the good client relationship manager. And they spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of competencies do these people need to have. And they, nobody spent time thinking about the execution functions anymore because they were doing a good job, right? But now we're at a place where to take this to the next level, you gotta go back. You gotta circle back with your execution functions and that's what we're gonna talk about today. So you always had execution functions that deliver results, they manage performance, they had a high degree of technical knowledge and skill and they had a proven track record, but that is not gonna be enough anymore. So this is what happened. Your execution was good, so the business allowed you to build a client relationship management function. The client relationship management function began to align with the business, and lo and behold, the business said, wow, there's some real value here. We're actually uh, having better planning. We're actually getting better solutioning from the corporate real estate group. But the offshoot of that is execution complexity and volume increase. Why? Because now you're really in there looking at alternative solutions. You're looking at uh, different scenarios. And that pulls back in execution in a different way. So you have this great divergence that I call, which is your, your, your CRM function becomes a strategic partner and um, your execution function falls behind because nobody bothered to tell the execution people that, guess what, your non-project workload is going to dramatically increase as we start doing more and more scenario planning and thinking and understanding of drivers and demand, et cetera, et cetera. And your change orders increase as we ask for more and more flexibility and adaptability. Your success is gonna be measured not only by your budget and schedule um, uh, uh, goals, but also whether you're able to adhere to this whole strategic and process relationship that the client relationship management people have set up. So this new way of working, which for people who are very good at executing, it starts to get a lot grayer. It starts to get a lot grayer. And nobody, and, and it's compounded by the fact that really nobody was paying attention to this. No, nobody. And I, I put myself in the, in the middle of that too because, you know, I, I'm talking about it now. But it, it comes from learning. It comes from experiencing. It comes from living it. And it comes from then taking steps now to figure out how to fix that and kind of what we've done. And that's what I'm, I'm going to be talking about. So I love this quote. This is a quote um, uh, from uh, uh, the CEO of Wells Fargo at the time in uh, 2005 that says, a well-conceived strategy is important, but I could leave our strategy on a plane and it wouldn't make a difference because it's all about execution. A second-rate strategy perfectly executed will beat a first-rate strategy any day. And I'll tell you what, if you watch sports, and I love sports, I watch it all the time, every Sunday when you're watching the NFL, you see this come to life, to life, okay? All right. So, 
I say nothing about the hometown team, right? Okay, all right. All right, but I have to tell you, I, will, I must diverge and say one thing. You got a hell of a pitcher if you're a Cubs fan. I don't know. You got a hell of a pitcher in John Lester. And I'm just so mad at the brass at the Red Sox for letting the guy go, because he would have signed last year with us for about $120 million. All right, I, that's it. I'm off my soapbox now, OK? All right, so, so this is my thing that I've been talking about since I was at Fidelity in the early 2000s. And it's something I call strategic execution. And it's what I call a new way of operating. And I will tell you, I've started thinking about this and preaching it to my organization. And I still didn't have that piece in my mind. I still hadn't, it still hadn't, light bulb still hadn't gone off about the fact that I wasn't spending enough time on my execution uh, functions. So this is, a, this is an overlay to that. So we used to spend a lot of time, if you were running a, running a, a corporate real estate deal, but you would tell people, do not drop the ball. How many of you said that? Do not drop the ball on this client, right? And so we would make sure that from the planning side of the house to the transaction side of the house to the project side of the house to the facility side of the house, we were focused on those handoffs, right? One to the other to the other. Don't drop the ball on the project, okay? And that linear way of looking at things, that two-dimensional way of looking at things says, you know, we're going to do very limited scenario planning, and we are going to have a serial process in terms of how we hand off. And once it passes you, you're done. You get to stop and breathe, and the next person is, is running the leg. But I, what I'm going to say to you is my view of how we work in this world today is not linear. And this is my analogy. The Tour de France. Why do I say that? Think about real estate. If I'm in financial services, and there's a number of people here in the room that work for companies in financial services, and I have a, a strategy around when I'm going to buy a stock, right? And under certain conditions, I have a, a buy order in there. Those conditions hit. In the old days, somebody would call the trading desk. Now it's like automatic, whatever. The strategy is executed in a nanosecond, right? But real estate's not like that. Real estate is not like that. Real estate takes, in the big scheme of life, a long time to deliver. And any time you have something that takes a long time to deliver, you run the risk of the strategy changing during the delivery process, right? And you run the risk of things appearing on, in the process of execution that can throw you off, all right? So think about the Tour de France versus a relay race. The relay race, I, I work on that handoff. I get that handoff. It's really good. I don't drop the baton. Whatever, we're done. In, a, in, in the Tour de France, you have a team, and you have a goal. You make a goal. That's, that's your goal. I'm going to be the first. Our team's going to be the first to Paris, right? And we make a strategy as a team. And the strategy is we're going to keep up with the, with the, with the leaders. And then in week two, when we hit the mountains, uh, these three guys are going to go for it because they're the mountain guys. And we're going to have a strategy around protecting uh, these guys and drafting off here and whatever, whatever. And it's a long, grueling race, right? Never know what could happen. You don't know the weather. You don't know this. You don't know that. Okay. Now you start off. You got your strategy, you got your team, 
and off you go. And then you're three or four days into it, and there's a crash. And your big mountain guy breaks a leg, and he's out of the race. Okay, so now what happens? That night, you all have to group together, and you have to redesign your strategy because the goal has not changed. The goal is still the same. The strategy has to adjust, and everybody on the team has to understand that the strategy is adjusting and what's going to happen. And then you go on, and you have to communicate. You have to communicate first what the strategy is, and then in the moment, as the race is going on, there are many points in time that you have to communicate. If it's time for uh, uh, Martin to take the lead and uh, for Tony to be drafting behind Martin, if, if, if Martin's not telling him, I'm about to go up, what happens? You could have another crash. You could lock pedals. You could do whatever. People have to constantly be communicating on this execution path. So that is something that I call strategic execution. Yes, we have a strategy, and yes, we're going to execute, but this whole giant piece in between is execution with a strategic bent to it. Now, you can probably figure out that that is a whole different way for a lot of your execution functions to be thinking, right? that they are now going to actually have to stay engaged, they're going to have to be lots of communication and stuff going around, et cetera. So how are we, how are we going to be able to make a success of this? And I would say that there's three um, key attributes or key drivers of whether we will ultimately end up um, being a, uh, a success at this. One is communication and collaboration uh, with the key stakeholders, and we'll talk about that. One is transparency in your assumptions and your costs. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. And then the last is adaptability in implementation. And now we're going to talk about each of those. But now we're adding to all your execution functions, and we had talked about all those um, other ones that, that were kind of assumed here. I'm going back here, so just so you remember, whoops, those, right? And now we're going to add to this all these complicated ones that people are going to have to figure out. And if you're not a person that likes to live in gray, that's kind of going to be challenging, all right? So you've got to find people who can think and act strategically. What does that mean? That they are able to use data to conceptualize and move forward innovative or new strategies. They are able to proactively uh, address the broad systemic implications, causes, and costs of problems and issues. Um, that they can anticipate how changes will impact projects, and they can adjust the strategy as necessary. And they can use their understanding of where you're ultimately trying to go to um, establish sort of midterm um, results and a vision. So they can figure out if ultimately we're trying to get here here are the pieces that we need to bite off to get there. They have to be able to communicate effectively because they will have to communicate with the client directly. They'll have to communicate with the other uh, uh, peers uh, that they have with the client relationship management team. 
They have to be able to talk to people who are not necessarily technical in their background in a way that they can understand what the issues are and in a way where they can give them uh, actionable um, uh, things that people can take, uh, take action on or make a decision on. So you can't have some uh, project person come in and basically say to the client relationship management about some problem that they're going to have to communicate to the client, well, here it is, and here's all the, here's all the budget and the stuff in, in square foot costs. Because the, cli the client's not going to look at that and see like, oh, the budget was, the budget was for you know, uh, 10,000 board feet of whatever, and now it's like 15,000 board feet of whatever. They, this is not how they're going to have to communicate. You have to communicate it in a way that the client, and even, this is key, the client relationship manager can understand. Because the client relationship manager is going to be a key point of contact uh, for the business. And they're going to understand kind of what the business's issues and concerns are and will help fashion whatever the solution is to that problem. All right, let's see what else we have. Uh, ability to build relationships. Okay, we all say, oh, that's, you know, that's really nice, it's mom and apple pie, but I'll tell you, there's people that can and there's people that can't. And you've probably all come across those. There's a way to go into a room and talk to somebody about a difficult issue that makes the relationship stronger or makes the relationship weaker. And uh, having a, uh, a condescending uh, tone or a, uh, ooh, you don't really understand this, or I'm a technical guy and I can do this and whatever, whatever, that doesn't go over well uh, with the clients. So it's really, it's really important um, in that sort of uh, field. Um, so how, how do we go about doing this? So what I'm going to spend, um, and I'm going, I'm going pretty quickly, so I, I'm going to get into actually trying to show you some tools they don't work for everybody, but I'm going to show you some things on kind of how we, um, how we might uh, attack this. I could pause here, because I know I've gone through a lot of stuff very quickly, and just say, does anybody have any questions uh, at this point on sort of the first part of the, of the presentation? I'm happy to take anything. Okay, I have stunned you into silence. That's okay. All right. That is fine. Okay, so it's not rocket science. That's my thing. It's not rocket science, but it's actually something that really uh, matters. It really matters. It's, it's not, it's, again, the strategy is not rocket science. The strategy of what you have to do with your organization is not rocket science. I mean, it may have taken me a bunch of years before I like, came, up, came up with it and like, realized kind of all the pieces, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. The execution of actually changing your organization to function this way is close to rocket science. Let me say that. <laughs> all right. So I will say one size does not fit all. What I'm going to talk to you about today uh, in terms of how some of the things, some of the tools and methods that I'm, I'm using uh, won't work for every company, but you'll, you'll, you'll get some ideas and you'll think about it um, for yourself. So. How do you leverage your client relationship management function? So if you are uh, in a basic hotel, and I will say, you know, so I was at the Hyatt the, you know, the other last night, whatever, here. A basic hotel, they, it's, it's just functional stuff. You know, you have a problem with the heat, you call the, 
house, whatever it is, the, uh, what are they, uh, front desk or something you call. If you want room service, you call room service. If you uh, need extra pillows, you call housekeeping, et cetera, et cetera, okay? In a really nice hotel, this is what you get. You get one button and it says guest services, right? But my travel budget, I am on the left, <laughs> your left. Um, uh, but when I'm on my own budget, sometimes with my uh, husband, I might be on the right. Okay, so the uh, point of that is when you hit guest services in one of those hotels, somebody uh, says, yes, Ms. Abrams, what's the problem? I tell them the problem. They say, uh, we'll take care of it. They hang up. Uh, the mechanic or whatever will uh, come up, et cetera, et cetera, do whatever they need to do. Uh, they will leave. And shortly after they leave, I will get a call from the hotel that said, did this solve your problem, right? Are you okay now? And my, uh, my uh, message to you is, that's the way to leverage a client relationship management function. You really want them to act as your sort of uh, traffic cop, if you will, for what's going on in the functions behind the scenes. What, what does that mean? That doesn't mean they have the only communication with the client, no. What it means is they need to know what's going on. So if your project manager is out meeting in a meeting with something on one of the, one of the business units and something comes up that's an issue or something that's unrelated to that particular meeting comes up that the client's not happy about, What's a project manager supposed to do? They have to let the client relationship manager know for that business unit. So this is all about information flow and how that works. So this is my map, you know, think global, act global, whatever, act local, et cetera. I have my clients, I call them client solutions. Um, that's my thing, client solutions. Why did I come up with that name? I came up with that name at Iron Mountain because when I got there, there was no function like this. I spent my first 90 days, I was hired to take what was perceived by the business as a very tactical and reactive um, uh, function and turn it into a strategic business partner. And after my first 90 days, one of the things that was super clear was that the, um, the functions were all trying to uh, help the business, but they were not talking to each other. So there was no sort of comprehensive response to the business. So the business would call projects and say, how much would it be to do da 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 And they call the leasing guys, can we get out of this da 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 And then they call um, uh, uh, somebody else and get information on that. And, and those guys weren't even talking to each other. And then the business was left to sort of figure out what they were going to do. So, uh, I knew I needed to put in this function. I didn't have a blank check. I was not working for a very, you know, extremely profitable financial services company, former company. I was, you know, I, 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 so I had to think of like, first of all, there's no way I would say I could need to hire client relationship managers in real estate because in that culture, in Iron Mountain, and Abby's, Abby's laughing because she used to work on our account, uh, that would not have gone over really well. It would look like a bunch of overhead. So what I said to them is, um, we need a planning function and we need a client solutions function. 
I called it client solutions because it sounded like they were getting something for it, right? And I said, there's this function that needs to happen to put together all of this scenario planning and pull all of this so that we can deliver comprehensive solutions to the business for this, because this is where this is getting stuck. And then also because of the particular business that Iron Mountain was in and the way it grew up, which was everything was driven, geographic P&Ls. So I couldn't tell you a product line at the time across the world. I could only tell you geographic P&Ls. It was so much a core part of their DNA that my client solutions function was geographically aligned, not business unit aligned, because there was no such thing as a business unit. Okay, so that's what worked for me. So we're going to spend a little time on communications and collaboration, transparency and adaptability, and then we'll be um, open uh, for uh, questions. So the communication and collaboration with key stakeholders. In, in, in my world, uh, what we've put in place is something that follows a formal and consistent approach and cadence, that we identify key stakeholders for each project that we disseminate the information uh, through the previously chosen leads, and we communicate progress frequently and at regular intervals. So here's a typical diagram. Uh, you, may, you may experience this at your company. You have the business. You have the real estate. And uh, everybody talks to everybody. I mean, you, you, you can't assume that, something, that something's going to follow like in a military precision. I tell you, you tell you. That's not everybody. Talks to everybody. And um, that's kind of what it like, looks like. And you have to understand that. But it's also important when you're starting sort of a major project or initiative that you take a little bit of time. And this is what our client solutions um, team does. And team, by team, I mean very small team. Uh, and map out, map out what this might look like for that particular project and who we would need to um, engage. And then put in place some regular structured communication um, where things are very transparent and uh, people uh, get to get updates on projects on a, on a regular basis. So just the other thing that we have to get across to people is the business unit leads are very busy. And I don't know if you remember that um, Charlie Brown, you remember that Charlie Brown and Snoopy and whatever. And there would always be, um, they'd sit in the classroom, and the adults, any adults in that commercial were like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so if you have kids, you know, because you just know that's what they're, they're like, can you brush your teeth? Can you brush your teeth? Can you brush your teeth? Wah, 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 wah. I don't know. <laughs> for 14 years, I've been saying, can you brush your teeth on the way out the door? Why do I have to say it for 14 years? Okay. Because he's not hearing me. He's just watching my mouth move. So the, a lot of these executives are kind of like that in the sense that they can't go into every gory detail about a project, but they need to know what's going on. So their attention span is small. Um, not in it, not, I'm not disparaging anybody, but they got a million things on their mind. So our communication has to be really important, uh, I mean really uh, precise, and focus on things that are important to the business. Cost, schedule, special conditions. It has to be consistent. We can't have a meeting and then in a little while we decide, oh, we need another meeting and whatever, whatever. We put regular meetings uh, on place. 
Um, we have the right level of detail. Um, we coordinate it through the project lead, which is most of the time, uh, when I say project, I'm not talking just about the day-to-day -day, um, uh, building of something. It could be an initiative, an effort, and, and all that uh, stuff through the, the key client uh, solutions person. And if something that is happening materially impacts number one or number two, before we go out to the business, we discuss it internally first. So we make sure that everybody on our project team knows what's going on, project, project writ large. Project team knows what's going on. So we don't have people out there with different messages. And we have a, we have a, a view and an approach that we are gonna present uh, to the client that we're, that we're all comfortable with. All right. So this is just an example. Again, doesn't, it's not going to work for everybody, but it gives you an idea of the type of communication um, that we would do. So we would show very simply, this is now for the executive communication, where we are on the budget. Let me see how the colors look here. Yeah, OK, they're all right. How the, uh, the, the budget. Um, then we have a look ahead uh, so they can see what's going on. A two-week look ahead, a two-month look ahead. We have high-level milestones, and we're grading these on a on a uh, you know bad or medium or yellow you know in terms of risk. And then we have um, a section that could either be um, uh, high-level risks or urgent things uh, that are necessary in order for us to remain uh, on schedule and budget. So it's very simple, one page. And like that bottom right um, uh, could. Uh, have stuff on uh, on detailed um, risk issues if we if we need to put them in there. Um, and then the second page here basically blows out the um, the uh, stuff that was on the first page with any kind of uh, particular um, plan for mitigating risk. So you can either go there or you can't go there if you're the um, if the executive. And this is a this this uh, is is pushed out to everybody who's a stakeholder in the initiative or the project, not just the top level. But we start with the top level and then come down because what we don't want to happen is starting here, and then they hear about it uh, not from us uh, before we have a chance to communicate it. Um, this is another thing. Our business operates on what they call playbooks. So each of the P&L uh, in each of the geographies um, has a playbook for what they're trying to achieve for the year. In essence, they're sort of their high-level goals and objectives. And so a lot of time, what we will do is, um, is provide our updates in their format. So it's easy for them to kind of see, and we color code it, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, milestone schedules, you know, your project guys have a Microsoft, you know, project thing that's, you know, it's an eye chart. You can't even, like, see it, even with a magnifying glass, with all the dependencies, et cetera. This is our sort of boiled down version for the executives of what we need to um, be focused on. So it's pretty clear, and we point out to them, we always point out to them the, er the key areas that we want them to, to, uh, uh, to notice or be aware of. All right. All right, now we're going to go to transparency and assumptions and costs. All right, scenario planning. Scenario planning, as all of you know, is basically saying what could be the best thing that could happen, what could be the worst thing that could happen. 
Um, what we do is that we, uh, for us, a lot of our key thing is understanding the demand that's coming from, um, coming from our clients in terms of new capacity that's necessary. So what we do is we sit down on a regular basis and regular um, uh, 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 basis with our clients and we look at those drivers of demand. And we together come up with kind of what we think the most likely scenario is and then we pressure test it uh, on either side. And the importance of doing that is to know that even if we decide this is, what, this is how we're going to be uh, functioning and moving along, that we need to know uh, by our regular sort of planning meetings if we're going off that tangent. Because if we're going off that tangent, we need to pull other levers. So we sort of want to know if this doesn't happen or if we start to see this, this is how we're going to adjust our strategy, which is what we were talking about earlier, right? Okay, so we have a strategy about delivering a certain amount of space. Uh, it's based on a very high probability of client X coming in and this and this and this and all this kind of stuff. And every three months as we're looking at with each business in each country around the world, we start to see something happening, then we could say, you know what, that can push us off. The client is not committing, the negotiation's taking longer, we can push off the delivery, because for us, delivering space in advance of the need is a huge drag on our P&L. It's not like people space, right? It's, it's the core part of our P&L. Everything that we deliver in that year hits a, hits a P&L because it's what we're, what we're delivering to you is secure space. So this is an example of what we call a regional portfolio plan. It may look like a little bit of an eye chart to you, but it's actually very simple and it's sort of one page. And what it does is it has years along there. You see 2013, 14, uh, 15, 16, 17 for us. Uh, what we care about is our non-racked capacity, meaning we have a building but we haven't yet racked the in inside of it. Uh, racked capacity, our total capacity. Um, what, how much is utilized and then our view of high and low in terms of demand. And it's mapped out so that we can see what would happen. And then we have our regional summary. And it has all the key highlights. The point of this is it is a memorialization of the conversation that happens on a regular basis so that we can go back and look at this three months hence when we are having the conversation, let's see where we are compared to this. So we document it. And if there were alternatives that we were considering, alternative A, B, and C here, we have documented them. We didn't just lose it into the, into the ethernet or somewhere, right? We actually have documented what we were thinking about and what the issues are so that we can go back to that. So we have, we list a couple strategic questions that we hear. We have a recommended approach and then we go forward and we revisit this on a regular basis. That's the discipline that we get into. So this one's very, very important. You've probably seen those dune fences, right? That kind of connect uh, uh, things uh, around. Tying back to numbers, budget, forecast, this is really critical around transparency and assumptions and costs. Okay, let's just say you have a project and the project's gonna be a million dollars. And in that million was made up of a budget. More here, less there, blah, 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 blah. 
and the project guys are executing the project. And so, sorry, before they're executing, they have a budget, then they go out and they actually tender the project. And the numbers come in, and the total, still a million, but that budget that they had, where the thing got improved by the investment committee and the business and everything, the, the numbers are a little different. It's a little higher on structural, it's lower on this, it's this, whatever, still a million dollars. In the old days, what would happen at Iron Mountain is the guys would say, great, million dollars, let's go. And they'd start the project. Now, what happens, and they don't tell the business, they don't go back to the business, they don't do any of that. Now they go out and they start to execute the project and find out that there's, you know, much more blasting that has to be done. And now they're going to go over a million dollars. So now they go back to the client and they say, we have to do this because of whatever. But meanwhile, the client's looking at this and saying, like, well, I, I, I don't understand this because the, this was the budget and now it's here and we can't tie it, we cannot tie it back because we never established what the true budget was supposed to be after we tendered it. So constantly tying back to what the original assumptions were. So after the project is tendered, you go back to the business and say, yes, but let me tell you the places where things have changed so that when we go back to them with a cost overrun or whatever, we're not first trying to tie back to the original budget and spend weeks doing that and figuring out where all the, the money was going here and there. So it's a constant way of sort of iterating going forward. Um, this is just another example of our, again, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an eye chart, but each of those is a different scenario on the top with different um, budgets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you don't keep the budgets up to date, and then all of a sudden you find yourself, we're operating on one budget, the business still thinks it's the first budget, and now you're going back to talk to them about something, you have to even educate them all the way up to where you are before you can even have a decent conversation. And then we use, we use timelines that are very simple, that says, okay, here's the timeline, here's our, here's our series of things that have to happen as a result of our scenario planning, and we can update this as we go, as we go through. And then the last one is adaptability and implementation. And that is really taking a look at when you put something like this in, you, you, I put in what I thought would work and we've adapted it over time. And we've come up with different tools and that sort of thing over time. When I joined the company in January of 2012, uh, it took me a little while 90, 100 days to figure out kind of what I think I needed to do. I then uh, had to sell the idea, et cetera, et cetera. So I brought in my first client, head of client solutions and, and planning eight months after I started. And uh, that took a while from the time I got permission until I brought that person in. Um, what we did was we were in 36 countries with 67 million square feet. I can't fix it all at once. So we went to the area with the most opportunity, which is the area with the most pain in the time, right there. And we went there because it was huge. The business was about to explode. Uh, it had, there was a, a part, particularly in, in Brazil of Latin America, that had been 
they, they had a series of managers till they finally got a really good one, and, 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 the, and the business was really tough in terms of uh, the types of real estate portfolio that they had. So that's what we focused on, to get a win. If any of you read the book, uh, uh, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell, what you understand is you, you have to start somewhere. And if you, if you keep going and going, eventually it, it all becomes like, uh, in this case, he'll talk about a fad. Certain people wearing clothes a certain way and then it eventually becomes. And the tipping point here is get a win. Get a win, show the value. And then what happened is as we did that in Latin America, other people are knocking on the door. Come do that for me here. Can we set this up here? Can we do this? Can we do that? So we've had to, we had to focus on the biggest things uh, first. And that's sort of uh, where we are now. Now we're, we're stretched around the world. Um, what happened was we got the win. People started asking us for all the stuff everywhere. <laughs> And that's when we hit the big uh, divergence that I was talking to you about, which is our project and transaction guys were just not prepared for this. Not prepared for the amount of work, the amount of scenario planning, the amount of communication, the amount of whatever. I had to constantly remind people, when somebody comes to you with a problem, don't think this way, think this way. And we still have issues where somebody in the best, best of intentions go to a client about something when they really should have circled back and we should have had that you know, communication. So it's a learning process uh, for everybody and that's kind of where we are uh, right now. Uh, and now I will say yes, we did make it an or organizational adjustments over this time. I've had to uh, uh, make some adjustments in terms of how I manage the, uh, the uh, team for the international uh, businesses because uh, partly as a result of our success, they wanted more single points of contact. So I restructured the organization as a result of that. And uh, we, in essence, have put uh, my, what came into the company as my head of client solutions and planning now as somebody in charge of all of international real estate directly with the functions reporting uh, to him, the, the uh, execution functions, and still have uh, a, a view uh, across the globe on the, um, on the uh, client relationship management as I brought somebody up, else up to speed in North America. So here's the takeaways. <clears throat> execution team has to become more strategic. There has to be end-to-end -end process management and client engagement. You have to manage, uh, you have to uh, model multiple scenarios. Um, and uh, the communication is key inside and outside uh, CRE because the goal is to make it seamless. Um, you really have to communicate the risks and the impacts uh, well, but they have to be documented very well. And as the business change uh, changes occur, your model on how you uh, organize your a group to deliver this is likely to have to change. And you have to think of it as an organic being that changes along with the business. And that's it. Thank you. Do we have any questions in the audience?
Can you just wait, because it, it's very loud in there and I, okay. I can't hear. Uh, thanks very much for your presentation, first of all. It's it great. But uh, My name is Stuart Bard. I'm with a company called eKiffum, a uh, uh, corporate real estate technology firm. And um, one of the things I'm hearing here, I, and I you know, don't want to oversimplify what you're saying, but what I'm hearing is that uh, a couple of things that stuck with me is that the process is really important and the change management. And mm -hmm. I use those terms because I've been in management consulting for years. But it seems to me that that's one of the, a couple of the, underpinnings that you're really emphasizing here? So uh, I think the process is absolutely key. Uh, without it, you have uh, chaos, really. Um, so uh, particularly when you're uh, on a scale uh, that we're on. So the process is really key. The change management is an interesting uh, one because the change management is not just change management with uh, how the business interacts with us, but it's change management within our own organization. And how do you uh, uh, convince people uh, and convince the people on the team that this is, uh, this is the path to take and this is the right way to do it? And how do you continually uh, reward people for good behavior and point out the, uh, the misses so that we continuously, uh, continuously get better? So there's a lot of conversation at my staff meetings about where we could have done things better, where we might have communicated, um, needed to communicate differently. Yeah. Um, Sarah, with the idea of process, keeping that going, I'm curious with some, uh, as a service provider, we're seeing more and more integrated project delivery. So some specific processes designed to keep people strategic and on track. Are you um, an advocate of something like that too? Or are you guys starting to use those integrated project delivery systems? Okay, we don't we don't we don't use we don't use the, some special integrated thing. We don't. When I got there, they had no technology. Okay, none. I, I say this. I mean, it was. Uh, I went in. I, I I said so. So what's the budget? And so uh, the analyst after um, came back to me and said it's uh, 14 million dollars. I said you have 67 million square feet. One thing I know is it's not 14 million dollars. Oh well, that's all we can see because. That's North America. It's what's sitting here in the, in the corporate budget. I said, well, what about all the rest of this stuff? So I sent them off on a three-week hunt to pull together from every different country and through Hyperion and this and that and whatever to figure out actually what we were spending in any way that you or I would want to look at it. So we are just about, we've just made a selection. We are just about, we got the approval to do this. And really, the REIT was a driver. Um, just about to start implementation of an IWMS system that's going to be critical to our ability to report on the supplemental reporting that's required for um, being a REIT. Um, but we had to do a lot of this um, very manually. Yeah. One quick question that came in on Conference IO is who is your favorite sports team? Ah! Okay, I will say this. I, I've lived in Boston a long time now, so I have adopted my husband's team. But I grew up uh, on, in, in South Jersey, and so we, I grew up, you know, Sixers, Broad Street Bullies, Eagles, um, so Philadelphia fan originally. And, uh, and, and it's okay because we've got National League, American League, we have NFC, AFC, so I'm good unless they meet in the World Series. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you very much, Sarah. All right.
Please remember, fill out the surveys on the table, and we'll see you January 8th for our economic forecast featuring the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago.